Hello and welcome to the December 2021 edition of the MDS podcast, the official podcast of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. Today, we are lucky enough to have two guests with us, Dr. Cecilia Peralta, Neurologist and Movement Disorder Specialist at CEMIC University Hospital in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and Associate Professor of Neurology at the CEMIC Medical University, and also a member of the MDS Neuroimaging Study Group in Movement Disorders, as well as Professor Antonio Strafella, the Kremble Rossi Chair and Chair of Research in the Division of Neurology in the University Health Network at the University of Toronto. They will be speaking with us about their article published in Movement Disorders Clinical Practice entitled Pragmatic Approach on Neuroimaging Techniques for the differential diagnosis of Parkinsonisms. I look forward to learning a lot from them today, and I hope you do too. Thank you for joining us, both of you. We have talked in the past on this podcast about how differentiating Parkinson's disease from atypical Parkinsonisms, especially early in the disease, can be difficult and how this stymies both research and optimal patient care. In the article, you talk about the imaging modalities that already exist and some up-and-coming imaging modalities that may be used in the future to assist with differentiating these conditions. Let's start with what is already used most commonly in practice. One thing that struck me about the paper is that you recommended MRI brain in all patients with Parkinsonism, even if classic idiopathic PD is suspected. I must confess that if someone comes in with very straightforward PD, I don't always get an MRI and often make the diagnosis and start treatment at the very first visit. The recommendations in the paper are that the MRI should be used at least once over the course of the disease just to rule out secondary causes. What exactly do you recommend to practitioners in terms of the timing of this? Do you think it should be obtained even prior to making a diagnosis? Yes, we believe that it's a kind of good practice, although it is not obligatory, but it's a good practice to have a brain MRI of patients in the workup of the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Sometimes patients themselves ask for an imaging and also their families, and we recommend to have at least one MRI in the course of the disease to rule out alternative diagnosis or to rule out secondary causes such as vascular lesions or space-occupying lesions or hydrocephalus or traumatic or toxic or metal depositions or demyelinating diseases, space-occupying lesions. I mean, other causes that may simulate or may present like a Parkinsonian syndrome but may not be in the end a true degenerative Parkinsonism. The other thing is that if possible, and nowadays it would be useful to include a susceptibility weighted imaging within the MRI because ion imaging can give us some clues to the diagnosis and differential diagnosis, especially between Parkinson's disease and atypical Parkinsonism. Also, I have to say, or I must say, that uh, MRI is not an approved biomarker for the uh, diagnosis or differential diagnosis. This is something important. It's an important concept that we have to take into account. Uh, but we can use in clinical practice and in certain context, integrated with the clinical features and with the clinical diagnostic criteria for the diagnosis and for the differential diagnosis of Parkinsonism. 
let's talk about differentiating degenerative Parkinsonism from non-degenerative Parkinsonism. One way we look at that, obviously, is through MRI to see if there are other things like vascular lesions that can explain the Parkinsonism that would make it non-degenerative. And you mentioned the SWI. Are you referring to the loss of the DNH signal on 3T MRIs in PD versus healthy controls? Yes, yes. This is an, an useful uh, sign that can be used in the differentiation from degenerative, from non-degenerative Parkinsonism. We also have clinical clues, the presence of typical features and a good response to dopaminergic trial. This leads us to think of a typical and degenerative Parkinsonian syndrome. But if these features are absent or are unclear, then we can use DNH imaging, which is basically lost in Parkinson's patients and also in a typical Parkinson's disease. So it's not useful for differentiation between typical Parkinson's disease and atypical Parkinsonism, but it can be useful for the differentiation between degenerative Parkinsonism and non-degenerative Parkinsonism or other conditions. So what we're referring to here is the loss of the dorsal nigral hyperintensity on SWI of a 3T or higher MRI that you can see in degenerative Parkinsonisms, both PD and atypical versus healthy controls. In the paper, that's cited as having 100% sensitivity. And you also mention in the paper that the Moom Disorder Society clinical diagnostic criteria for PD notes that a normal DAT scan, which is another thing we use to differentiate degenerative versus non-degenerative Parkinsonism, uh, that a normal DAT scan is an absolute exclusion criteria for PD. So do I take this to mean that these two imaging modalities are, are two signs, both the DAT scan and the dorsal nigral hyperintensity sign or, or lack thereof in the case of Parkinsonisms are near perfect in their differentiation between degenerative and non-degenerative Parkinsonism, even in early disease? That's actually, Sarah, a very important question. In my personal practice, and when I see a patient, of course, I always take into consideration different kinds of information. So definitely, if we have a certain abnormalities with imaging, whether it's that scan or sophisticated MRI acquisitions, like, of course, the one that Dr. Peralta just mentioned. Definitely is very important information from my clinical decision, but uh, I think that uh, also uh, you have to take into consideration uh, the, the clinical correlations of uh, these findings uh, in order to have a, a more congruent approach in your final decision. So uh, definitely for me, the imaging acquisitions are important, but are not the only one that will guide my final decision. So abnormalities, of course, in the DNH plus changes in uh, data scanning, those are uh, relevant, but your clinical information has to be integrated with these findings. So it is usually my approach on a day-to-day -day practice. So I'm just trying to really pin you down here. So despite the clinical diagnostic criteria, you would say that these sweds or scans without evidence of dopamine deficit in patients tr truly who have PD, that that does exist? 
We know that I think uh, up to 10% sometimes of uh, these patients uh, may have a normal imaging finding. That's why I think uh, neuroimaging is relevant in this case. If you're able to identify some of these uh, patients that have a, a normal functioning of, let's say, the presynaptic terminal and still have some features that are suggestive of some kind of Parkinsonism, I think all this has to be taken into consideration as a whole. Whether it's a primary degeneration or secondary forms of degeneration, definitely imaging in this case becomes relevant. And so uh, I would endorse having at least a DET scan or, uh, together with an MRI for guiding your decisions, yes, in the most difficult situations. Definitely. I agree that looking at the whole picture is very important in these patients where one thing may not give us exactly everything that we need in terms of diagnostic accuracy. Most of us are familiar with the typical signs we see on MRI brain in patients with atypical Parkinsonism, like the hot cross bun sign, the hummingbird sign, unilateral cortical atrophy in cortical basal syndrome, and those types of things. Can you discuss how we can quantify some of these features a bit more objectively to aid in diagnosis and some of the other signs on 3T or even 1.5T MRI that we can use to aid in a specific diagnosis? You know, brain imaging is, is very relevant to demonstrate midbrain atrophy or pons atrophy and middle cerebellum pedicle atrophy or superior cerebellum pedicle atrophy and those changes are hyperintensities at those levels. And it's also useful to rule out alternative diagnosis. As we know, PSP is sometimes the typical Parkinsonian disorder that gives us the most difficult challenge in terms of differential diagnosis. And recently, it has been published two set of measures that have been found to be very useful to differentiate PSP from PD and from MSA. And these two measures are the midbrain to pons ratio and the MRR Parkinsonism index, which is calculated by uh, multiplying the pons to midbrain area ratio by the middle cerebellum pedicle width to superior cerebellum pedicle width ratio. And you get a value of 12.9, and if it is increased, it is very suggestive of PSP, particularly in those patients with vertical supranuclear gaze palsy or PSP, which and son syndrome. And it's very useful to differentiate from PD and also from MSA. And in this regard, the MDS-PSP study group indicated that this MRI-PI and the midbrain to pons ratio were the most reliable biomarkers for the diagnosis of PSP, which has Sons-Olszewski syndrome. And I think one, one of the good things of the paper, if you look at the figures, you have practical explanations on how to measure a superior cerebellar pedicle? Because, I mean, sometimes it's not easy. You find it in, in the papers, but you don't know in practical terms how, in which plane you are going to measure that. So I think in the figures, if you look at the figures, this is, I find personally very useful that information in which planes you have to look at. What, what is the normal width of the superior cerebellar pedicle? What is the normal width of the middle cerebellar pedicle? How to measure them? I think this information is quite useful for daily practice to have at hand. And something similar happens to with MSA as well, where the pattern of brain atrophy is located 
uh, particularly affecting the pitamen and the middle cerebellar peduncle together with some uh, hyperintensities, the hot crossbone sign and the middle cerebellar peduncle hyperintensity and the putaminal brain sign, which reflects the atrophy of the posterior pitamen. So you mentioned lots of calculations and practical guides to help a practitioner go into the MRI and actually make these calculations. I was wondering, as I was reading this, how you see in the future in terms of if there will be any kind of automation of these types of calculations of various diameters and widths and areas of brain tissue to aid a movement disorders neurologist or radiologist in proper diagnosis if they don't have potentially the time or expertise to sit there measuring for all their patients? Oh, yes. I mean, they are ongoing projects directed to automated measurements of these indices and ratios. I think one of the future aspects of imaging would be the access to automated measurements of these indexes and all these brain uh, volumes that can help in, in the diagnosis. I don't know if you want to add further on this. Indeed, the, the future of these uh, techniques and approaches is probably based on the success of potential platforms that uh, will allow to have uh, automated calculations of these uh, different uh, measures and because as you just mentioned most centers probably won't have either the expertise or sometimes the technology to uh, make this uh, sophisticated uh, analysis or measures so having uh, an automated approach with certain platforms would uh, allow a more wide distribution of these uh, techniques. I know that uh, a number of centers are trying to implement this and eventually will become more and more available. That sounds great. Cecilia, coming back to you, all the findings that you mentioned with the putaminal atrophy, etc., would they generally be present early in the disease course, or would you expect some of these other features that we're familiar with, like the hot cross bun sign and things like that, that in early disease the sensitivity would be low? Uh, yes, definitely. In early disease, the sensitivity is low. And in fact, this is a problem or a limitation, let's say, of these uh, imaging biomarkers. Approximately half of atypical Parkinsonian patients won't present these signs early in the disease. However, there are some papers published that shown that changes seen in MSA, this pitaminal atrophy and hyperintensity in around 30% of MSA patients can be present inclusive when not all the clinical diagnostic criteria are uh, fully developed. So I think that one of the ideas behind the paper when we discussed uh, with the new imaging group was to help the general neurologists and also the radiologists how to read uh, in detail an, an MRI or a PET scan, because usually you have a lot of information, but you need to know where to look, what to look, how to measure to be able to get all the information that a biomarker can give to you. You go through some flow sheets as part of the paper of how to approach a patient with Parkinsonism, including using combinations of MRIs, DOT scans, FTG PET. What is the difference between these two algorithms? Are they mostly related to what is available at individual institutions? 
Uh, well, I think there's no specific difference. I mean, they are in fact different because they're different methods. And then you can use one or the other one according to what is available. Of course, again, another important concept is that the only approved biomarker to be used in clinical practice for the differential diagnosis of PD from essential tremor is that scan. is a marker of the dopamine transporter with respect to using IOFL pain. This is very important to have into account. This is the official approval. The other things we can use in clinical practice, we can use in certain contexts or according what is available to us. And Antonio, can you talk through some of the things that might be coming down the pike in terms of neuroimaging for these patients, particularly highlighting imaging modalities that you think will become clinically relevant or more likely to become clinically relevant in the coming years? Yes, yes. So, of course, the field uh, of neuroimaging at the moment, I would say, is actually exploding (laughs) in the sense that in the pipeline, there are a number of interesting developments that could be clinically useful in the near future. You're probably very much aware of uh, tau imaging, of course, and for uh, PSP and uh, CBD, or let's say uh, for our pathology in general. In the last five years, there has been a, a great interest in developing uh, certain radio tracers that are able to image uh, these pathologies of atypical Parkinsonisms. And, uh, um, of course, now we are moving into the second generation of tau tracers and at least three uh, or four new potential tracers that have been tested. And among those, probably there is one or two that uh, are emerging more without naming one specifically, but uh, certainly there have been a number of publications in the last six months that seem to be very much uh, suggestive that uh, these radiotracer uh, can be useful for diagnosis of PSP and corticobasal degeneration. And again, the, the, the problem that these tracers had in the past was the off-target binding, which now with the new generation tracers seems to be uh, less and less. So definitely we are moving into an area of a great interest from a clinical point of view and uh, definitely now one of the largest task that uh, the neuroimaging community is involved is in trying to identify also a tracer for alpha-synuclein. Of course, most of the studies at the moment are still at the preclinical level, but it seems that there might be a chance in the near future to have some uh, clinical trials that uh, will be exploring the possibility of these new radio tracers for, for alpha-synuclein as well. So definitely, I would say in the next five years, there will be great developments in the field and I look forward to see how we can implement more and more neuroimaging in general, whether it's MRI or molecular imaging into the clinical practice, because I think that will have a great impact on our clinics for our patients as well. Well, in terms of Tau Pet, if I remember our interview correctly from 2019 at the Moom Disorders Society meeting, I think you sound a bit more optimistic about it than you did then. So that's certainly encouraging. Yes, I definitely am because uh, uh, that was probably still the beginning of uh, Tau imaging. And uh, that was actually uh, most of the work done in the first generation of the tracer. But now we are in the second generation. We are aware of the problems <laughs> and I think we are moving in the right direction, even though there are always new challenges that we have to face. But uh, I think now we are in a better position than we were three or four years ago. Yes. It's very encouraging. All right. Well, is there anything else you guys want to add before we sign off? 
I would say I agree, totally agree with Antonio that a neuroimaging field is very dynamic. There are a lot of developments. Tau PET probably will be one of the most promising areas uh, of development in the next years. But also the basic uh, biomarker studies such as MRI and, and high field MRI, which are emerging now, are very promising as well. We hope that they can enter more and more in the daily clinical practice to, to improve our ability to better diagnose and treat our patients. And of course, I, I want to acknowledge to all the co-authors who did a great job writing the paper. Uh, and also, I hope that the general neurologist, the community may find the paper useful to improve these basic uh, skills that are needed to have a pragmatic approach on how to read an MRI, how to look for for all these uh, signs and how to use this for the better of our patients. Yes, I would echo that the paper itself is very practical in terms of giving any provider a clinical approach to these patients and trying to come up with a good, accurate diagnosis as early as possible, including the flow sheets and a lot of figures that show the imaging findings in great detail. So I do encourage all of our listeners to go to the paper as well for those practical tips. Thank you so much for joining us and you have a good day. Thank you for inviting us, Sarah.